Hello, and welcome to the Dark Ages podcast. This is episode 7, All the Sun Shines Upon. Hello everyone, and thank you for your patience. Uh, Releases are going to be a little bit wonky for a little bit, but the podcasting does continue. I haven't given up or pod-faded, or if that's what the kids say. It's just the usual end-of-the-year kind of craziness getting in the way of the weekly episode schedule for a bit. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving to my listeners in the States. Uh, To the other third of you, happy Thursday. This week's episode is a bridge between the Huns' defeat of the Goths and the emergence of Attila. There's a lot of stuff happening and quite a few names, but only a few of them have any relevance later on, so don't worry about it too much. Uh, Last time, I talked a lot about the Roman perception of the Huns, what made them different from other barbarians that the Romans had encountered, and a bit about what made them so formidable. This episode is going to be about what the Huns were up to while the Goths were roaming around within the Empire, and how the experience of being right up next to the Romans was changing them. Though the Huns were formidable and extremely successful, they were not yet a unified nation. Our knowledge is sketchy, but at this point, and I'm talking here about the 370s and 380s, the Huns were a confederation of tribes and clans that banded together as needed to take advantage of the increasingly obvious riches of their neighbors to the west and south. That's not so different from the Goths, you might say, but remember that the Goths had a tradition of investing overall authority into a single figure at times of crisis, the Kindans, or judge. The Huns had no such tradition, and decisions appear to have been made by consensus among independent chieftains, though I expect that it was common for stronger chiefs to bully weaker ones into supporting this or that action. Today we'll trace the emergence of leaders who would begin to turn the Huns' ad hoc horde into something like an empire. The Huns were illiterate, so just about everything we have to say about them comes to us from outside sources, which means Roman sources, really. That means that it's much more difficult to be sympathetic to the Huns than it is to the Goths, because they had Jordanis in their corner, and the Huns have nobody like that for them. The Huns must have had an oral tradition of some kind. All people do. And the Roman diplomat and historian Priscus refers to songs of praise sung in Attila's Hall, but provides no details or any kind of transcript. With the exception of those kinds of bits and pieces, the Greco-Roman writers we have tend to be disinterested in recording the details of the Huns' cultural life, so we'll never know for sure the name of the Huns' war god, or their creation myth, or anything like that. Since the Romans didn't get more interested after Attila's death, we can't even reliably reconstruct these kinds of things from later stories but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's introduce the first Hun leader that has the twin distinctions of being specifically named in the sources and also definitely existing, Alden. Last week I mentioned Balimber, but he probably didn't actually exist, so Alden is our winner. Alden appeared around 400 CE at the westernmost edges of the Hun's domain, which would be modern Romania at this point. He's first mentioned in connection to a Roman civil war. No. A civil war in Rome? I know. He led cavalry contingents working for Stilicho. And here the story that I've already told about the Goths bleeds in a bit into this one. Do you remember Gainus, the general that Alaric served under during his first stint in the Roman army? 
Probably not. I don't think I cast him in our head movie, which was an oversight. Guinness was a goth, and if you remember him, you'll remember he was a key part of the coup that brought old droopy dog Eutropius to power in the East. The two divided authority and together became the power behind underage Emperor Arcadius. That arrangement held for a few years, but Eutropius's success against the Huns that invaded from the East, which we talked about last time, brought him increasing prestige and upset the balance of power between the two men. Gainas attempted a coup of his own, gathering troops and moving against the eunuch, but he failed, and was forced to flee across the Danube. He went to Alden for help. This, of course, was not the first time a Roman usurper had sought assistance outside the empire. It wasn't the first time a Gothic leader had asked for assistance from their former enemies either. There had been Hun troops at the Battle of Adrianople, at the invitation of the Goths. The world is chaotic and uncertain, and being picky about your allies would only lead to failure and defeat, no matter where your personal bigotries might lie. Speaking of realpolitik, Alden made the calculation that a Gothic leader with political juice and the core of an army was not someone he wanted running around among his Gothic subjects, so he sent a box to the Emperor Arcadius containing Gainus's head. Alden is mentioned again, providing troops to James Purefoy, I mean Stilico, during Radagaisus's invasion in 406. Stilico also acquired some Hunnish bodyguards around that time, and it's not at all unreasonable to guess that they were Alden's men. Of the three military powers in the Middle Empire, Hun, Roman, Visigoth, none had any interest in having independent Gothic groups running around on either side of the border. The Huns wanted to keep a firm grip on their own subjects. Stilicho and the Romans were annoyed by Alaric, but at least had some relationship with him and knew that he could be useful. And Alaric himself couldn't tolerate other Gothic armies undercutting his position with the Romans as their official Goths. So, Goths that attempted to break out from under Hunnish control would find they had very little support inside the Empire. By the time Alaric sacked Rome, both Roman and Goth were in consistent contact with the Huns to negotiate and maneuver for advantage and maintain some kind of balance of power. It was common to find Huns serving as mercenaries all over the Empire, and Hunnic bodyguards became a regular sight around powerful men. But the Huns were still not a united nation. Contingents of them were free to hire themselves out to whoever made a satisfactory offer, or more likely whoever made their chief a satisfactory offer, with no overarching strategy or national policy in place to prevent that kind of freelance work. You need to beat someone up, and you're willing to pay for it? Lucky for you, we're perfect at that kind of thing. Where do you need us? What do we need to sign? Alden's big break came in 408. Arcadius, who had received the box with the head, died at the beginning of that year, and his son, Theodosius II, became Emperor of the East in his place. You may recall that this imperial death was the trigger that led to Stilicho's fall. Succession is a tricky time in any empire, especially in the increasingly fractious Roman one, and especially, especially, when the new emperor is a strapping young man of seven. Sensing trouble, the Praetorian prefect Anthemius withdrew troops from the Danube frontier to the eastern border with Persia. That turned out to be unnecessary, and a peace treaty was quickly agreed with the Persian king Yazdegerd. Strictly speaking, I didn't need to name the Persian king there, I just wanted an excuse to say Yazdegerd. The thinly guarded Danube proved too much of a temptation for Alden, who crossed with his army and captured Castra Martis, apparently by treachery. 
Alden's capture of Castra gave him a secure base from which to pillage at will through Moesia and Thrace. He was apparently quite pleased with himself, and was beginning to fall prey to the arrogance of victory. When a Roman commander approached him with a proposal for peace, Alden famously pointed at the sun, and declared that he could subjugate all the lands that were illuminated by it if he wanted to. So, if you're the Romans, what do you do? What do you do when your opponent is uninterested in reasonable negotiation, and you're not so sure you can beat him in direct confrontation? For one thing, if you're Anthemius, you improve and extend the walls of Constantinople. The walls that he built are called the Theodosian Walls, but they were Anthemius's babies. Sometimes called the Land Walls, they would stand, unconquered, until the Ottomans brought cannons to bear on them in 1453. The other thing you do if you're Anthemius is you work on your enemy's friends. The central tentpole of Roman diplomacy had for centuries been to play one tribe off against another. By Alden's time, the Romans had an entire generation in which to learn that this new Hunnic threat, while scary, was not a monolith. The Romans began sending representatives to the chiefs of the individual bands in Alden's armies, offering leniency, bribes, whatever was necessary to get the destruction to stop and get Alden on the right side of the river again. Their efforts were ultimately successful. Bit by bit, elements of Alden's forces slipped away, openly or covertly, who knows. The impression is that most left as small bands under their individual leaders rather than in large blocks, so the losses were by gradual attrition. But eventually, Alden looked up and discovered that his overwhelming force wasn't anymore. Alden's game was up, and he knew it. In order to facilitate his exit, the Romans were prepared to be fairly generous. They agreed to an annual tribute to be paid to Alden, and hostages were exchanged, including one we've met before, a teenaged Flavius Aetius, played by a very, very young Michael Keaton. This was probably when he was transferred from his Visigothic um, hosts and made his connections among the Huns under the auspices of Alden. The walls of Theodosius were not the only improvement made to the defenses of the Eastern Empire in response to Alden's breakthrough. Anthemius ordered new ships built to patrol the Danube, and upgraded fortifications all along that border. Towns across Moesia took steps to repair and improve their walls, and were told that the men of the province made sure they had weapons readily accessible to them at all times. That readiness stood them in good stead later, as Gainas found he couldn't make any headway in his rebellion, as he was unable to take a fortified base within the borders of the empire. As a result, he ran to Alden, and as we saw, he lost his head. Alden disappeared from history after that, and the years that followed 408 are the most mysterious in the already mysterious history of the Huns beyond the Danube. They had become a fixture of Roman life as cavalry contingents. Both the state and private aristocrats hired them, and remember the 10,000 Huns that Honorius threatened Alaric with? Those were in addition to a few hundred already working with the emperor's forces in Italy. But their presence did nothing to soften Roman's general attitude toward them. The poet Claudian informed his audience with perfect seriousness that the Huns sacrificed their own parents when they grew too old to support, and later writers added that the elders were actually cannibalized. Our friend Giordani's allowed that they were, quote, a race almost of men, end quote, which is uncharacteristically pithy of him. It's easy to shake our heads at this kind of bigotry, but when you consider that the people of Moesia and Thrace and its neighboring provinces... By the way, I'm going to put a link to a provincial map up on the website. 
had been reduced to starvation level by these raiders, and that almost every family would have been touched by their attacks in some way, and most of those ways being fairly horrific, it becomes a little easier to see their point of view. The church, though, was undaunted by the fierce reputation of the Huns and sent out missionaries to them. They didn't have an enormous amount of success. Language was a problem. It was apparently fairly easy to find speakers of Gothic and other Germanic languages, but the Huns' language was wholly alien to the Roman clergy, and only a handful managed to come to grips with it. The most notable apostle to the Huns was named Theotimus, who was Bishop of Tomas, which is modern Costanta in Romania. His biographer claims that he won the Huns' respect and even performed a miracle or two while among them, but in terms of actual conversions, Theotimus did no better than any of his colleagues. A few optimists claim that the Huns had stopped drinking human blood in anticipation of the day they might drink the blood of Christ, but there's no evidence that the gospel had any real effect on the Huns whatsoever, and really when you think about it, I'm not sure that really sounded like that much of an improvement. As always, the voices we hear from of the ancient past are the voices of the well-to-do, who had the education and the free time to write history, or write anything, really. So what about the rest of the empire? How do they feel about all of this, these rural peasants and urban artisans and laborers that made up the vast majority of the population? Certainly the Huns were as terrifying to them as they were to the upper crust. A man whose house was just burned down is going to be upset by it, whether it's a villa or a hovel. Wives raped, children led into slavery, food stolen, church gutted. Hatred of the Huns is no doubt shared at all levels of Roman society. But... When a frightening group appears, some small portion of their victims will be drawn to it. How Alden took Castra Martis is open to question. It is possible that he really was aided by a traitor on the inside, and that tells us something important about this moment in Roman history. The common man in the field or in the town was not necessarily all in on the idea of the empire. I talked in the last episode about low morale among the rank-and-file soldiers in the late Imperial Army, common working people of the countryside weren't in any better shape. The wealthy dodged their taxes, and the state made up the difference on the common people's backs, and while Christianity may have provided some comfort to the downtrodden, it was not enough to prevent peasants from joining invaders in their plundering, or simply striking out on their own as bandits and rebels. In sources a word appears repeatedly, Bagaudi. It's difficult to understand exactly what the term means. Some more modern historians suggest that it refers to bandits and outlaws, or renegade soldiers. Those with a more Marxist bent suggest a kind of lower-class resistance movement, but we don't really have much to go on. They appear in all different theaters, usually separate from the identifiable barbarian peoples. My impression is that any of those explanations may be accurate, and that the word bagaudi is used a little bit like the word terrorist today. The term seems to indicate a rebel, whether it's a slave revolt, opportunistic bandits, or organized urban rebellion. What it is, is a person who has lived under Roman law and has chosen to reject it, thereby making themselves no better than barbarians. That comes through in the sources that mention the country people that saw an opportunity in Alden's attack following the defeat of Gainus in the attack on Castra Martis. Zosimus refers to runaway slaves and, quote, others that abandoned their posts, who then referred to themselves as Huns, knowing it would strike greater fear into their opponents. No matter who they were, their presence speaks to the continued general unpopularity of the imperial state, which is overtaxing them, failing to protect them, or both. Bagaudi were one of the forces the Visigoths fought once they were settled in Aquitaine. They were literally everywhere. 
In the process of their migration slash invasion, the Huns had pushed or dragged dozens of groups with them westward, creating a chain of overflowing buckets that would have profound consequences for the future of Rome and Europe. We know for sure they had crossed the Carpathians and were in control of the Hungarian plain before 420. The lands that had been the home of the Tervingi provided lush grasslands for the Huns' herds, but this wasn't a matter of simple replacement. Like all steppe empires that would follow them, the Huns didn't have the numbers to completely remake the lands they conquered. Instead, as often happens with any invasion, the elite layers of the society were skimmed off and replaced with new Hunnic leaders, while the Gothic and Sarmatian commoners remained in place. The replacement of the Gothic leaders wasn't really complete either, since among the supporters and sub-commanders of Attila we see many names that are clearly Gothic in origin. Speaking of Goths, we need to talk about them again. How's that for a segue? Despite all the time we spent with the Visigoths over those five episodes, the followers of Alaric constituted only a small part of the Gothic people. A huge number, probably the vast majority, were stuck back on the north side of the Danube and had to adapt to life under the new management. The Goths that developed in those conditions outside the empire are the ones we call Ostrogoths. We will come back to them in more detail in future, but for now, many of the warrior class among them found a place as intermediaries between the Huns and their people. So as the Huns consolidated their rule over Greater Scythia and Dacia, their army changed and diversified. In the raids of Alden, there are infantrymen marching in support of the horsemen, as the Huns learned to deploy mixed forces effectively, which only made them more dangerous. Behind the Danube, out of sight of the Romans, the Huns were pulling their newly forged empire together. We know nothing of the struggle that must have been involved. Intimidation, bribery, reward, and coercion all must have played a part, but for almost a generation we cannot see any of it. One of the things that must have been happening, though, was a stratification. Before their migrations, the Huns would have lived in desperate poverty. We see that from the descriptions of their clothing, leather and linen which they wore until it rotted off of their bodies. In a society that has nothing, there is very little incentive for the development of a complex hierarchy. Tribes would have leaders, and maybe even hereditary chiefs, but in material terms there would have been very little difference between a chief and any other Hun's daily life. That began to change as the Huns conquered the Goths, and accelerated as they made direct contact with the Empire. Now there were farmers, who would deliver food when they were told. Now there were craftsmen, who would provide goods in abundance beyond anything that could be traded for or raided on the steppes. Things like saddles, fine cloth, worked leather, weapons. And across the river, there was gold. Some chiefs were more successful than others. Their raids brought more goods, and men were drawn to them. The successful distributed the prizes of raiding and extortion and gathered more men around them, and so became stronger. Strong bands could sell their services to Roman generals for more gold. Tribes began to coalesce under the leadership of fewer and fewer leaders, and beneath them emerged a stratified society. Each sub-chief fought for a greater share of their lord's generosity than their neighbor. Eventually, some of those lords gathered enough power to compel rather than convince others to serve them and rebellion became possible. When power was diffused through the confederation, rebellion was meaningless. Now that power was becoming centralized, whole tribes could become rebels by refusing to submit to central power. Plenty led to politics. All of that is a broadly reasoned series of events, pieced together from the changes that were evident to the Romans in their sporadic contact. 
we don't know about the specifics of that process. But what is clear is that the Huns established themselves in their new domains quickly, and that process of consolidation proceeded rapidly from there. There's a bit of personal frustration here, because we know of one person who could have provided us with an extraordinary amount of information, but didn't. And that's Michael Keaton. I mean, Aetius. He lived with the Huns from 408 until somewhere in the teens, so five years or more. But nowhere can I find any reference to anything he might have written down or said about the experience. He was not Julius Caesar, is what I'm saying, who in the process of conquering the Gauls also wrote about them. Maybe that speaks to a change in Roman society, with greater separation between men of letters and men of arms. Maybe it just highlights how exceptional Caesar was. Either way, I am personally upset with Flavius Aetius for not keeping a diary. I mean, come on, man. Throw us a bone. Thanks to Aetius's lack of consideration for future podcasters, we have only a few names and very little detail about the leaders of the Huns after Alden. There was one called Caraton, who received gifts from the Romans, but we don't know much about about it beyond that. There's one who is apparently named Donatus, which appears in the record, but given that that's clearly a Latin name, and he's kind of vaguely mentioned anyway, he might not have been a Hun at all. And are these men kings, or just powerful chiefs? Did they rule over all the Huns, or some limited segment? Probably the latter, but again, we don't know. The next definite statement I can make is in 422. In that year, there was a major invasion of Thrace. It was led by a character named Rua or Rugila, depending on who you read. I'm going with Rua because it's easier to say. Rua apparently had a brother named Octar, with whom he shared leadership of the Huns. These two controlled the last and largest of the Hunnic confederations. They had grasped the brass ring and ruled in an arrangement that mirrored that of Rome, Octar in the west, Rua in the east. Again, we don't know how they achieved that or how they were related to any of their predecessors. Rua's incursion into Eastern Roman territory was entirely successful. He threatened Constantinople, and the Emperor Theodosius II was forced to agree to a tribute payment of 350 pounds of gold. That's Roman pounds, which are smaller, but still. That seems like a lot of money, and it is. That much gold today would be worth about $7 million, just as gold. But in terms of the imperial budget, it was perfectly manageable. Plus, here's the thing. We have to keep in mind that throughout just about all of these histories, Trade continues to flow across the empire's borders. A lot of raiding is really just a tactic to force more favorable trade policies. Some of that gold paid to the Huns would be melted down and worked into ornaments and so on, but not all of it. And the Romans were the only trading partner available for an array of finished merchandise, so a huge portion of that gold would eventually work its way back into the empire's economy, and from there, since everyone paid their taxes in gold, back into the empire's coffers. Long term, these tribute payments then were not necessarily the burden they seem at first blush. At least, not at this early stage. Am I foreshadowing? Yes, I am. While Rua was wringing concessions from the east, he and his brother were also hip-deep in Roman politics in the west, facilitated in large part by Aetius, who was revealing himself to be a canny and, to my mind, not entirely appealing operator. Aetius, now in his thirties, had thrown his support behind yet another pretender to the throne of the West, and worked his contacts to raise a force of 10,000 Huns from Octar and Rua. Unfortunately, that pretender failed and was executed before Aetius could reach Italy with that army. The new Western Emperor was named Valentinian III, 
and he was the son of, wait for it, our old friend Gala Placidia. So, to set the scene, imagine six-year-old Valentinian, we'll get around to casting him later, with his experienced, well-traveled mother, played by Marion Cotillard, standing beside him. Aetius, played by Michael Keaton, strides in to apologize insincerely for the business with the other guy. We do have a problem, he says. We? Placidia answers icily. Yes, there are 10,000 Huns outside the city, and they are looking quite bored and restless. Valentinian is about to point out that to Aetius that he was the one who brought them in the first place, but is silenced by his mother's hand on his shoulder. Pointing out the obvious is not how this game is played. Can you get rid of them? she asks. I'm sure we can find some kind of solution, Aetius replies smoothly, though I may lack the proper status to give them orders now. Comes, Placidia said, making her opening offer of a title. Well, the barbarians will not respect anyone who does not have troops to command, says Aetius regretfully. The empress regent purses her lips. Why would I give you troops that you can use against my son at any time? I do not ask you to give them, Highness. I ask you to trade them. My Huns for your federati. And I would also point out, he added, nodding toward the window, I have troops either way. Another man steps out of the shadows and whispers in Placidia's ear. She frowns as she listens, looking doubtful. She in turn whispers in the ear of the bemused emperor. He looks at her for a moment. She nods at him, and he speaks to Aetius for the first time. Flavius Aetius, he says, you shall be named Magister Militum Pergalius. You are ordered to bring order to the provinces of Gaul and keep the peace there. Aetius's mouth twitches at the corners. He bows deeply. It will be my pleasure, Majesty. I shall swear whatever oath you ask of me, and henceforth I shall be your devoted servant. Placidia's voice remains chilly. We expect your friends to be out of Italy before the month's end. I invented that little scene, of course. No record of such negotiations exists, and I imagine I skipped over several dozen layers of protocol. But the result is accurate. Aetius was named commander-in-chief of all the forces of Gaul, which gave him nominal authority over Theodoric and his Visigoths. Now that seems mad. Why reward Aetius when he has just brought an army to Italy in support of a pretender? Well, first of all, he did have all of those Huns with him. Second, he had demonstrated the ability to raise those Huns with basically no difficulty. That made him both a potential threat and a potential asset. And there's a theme developing here of the late Roman state constantly trying to balance all the various threats it faced with the potential benefits that they also represented. Third, if Aetius was busy restoring order in Gaul, he would be hopefully too busy to interfere too much in Italy. Gaul was still a mess. The Goths were in a more stable position than ever, but still could find reasons to flex their muscles and keep the Romans on their toes. The northern provinces were barely under Roman control at all, as the Franks and local aristocrats sought greater autonomy. There were Bagaudi all over the place, and the Burgundians had carved out their own kingdom along the Upper Rhine. Plenty to keep Aetius busy. Aetius took care of that last problem first. I had mentioned this last time, and we'll talk much more about it in a few episodes down the road, but Aetius and his Huns attacked the Burgundians and defeated them, seemingly without too much trouble, and then came back to finish the job with extreme prejudice. I think that incident will be getting its own episode all by itself later on because of how it echoes down through the German literature. 
but of course I'm talking about the Huns today. Rambling a bit about them, but still. It's possible that the Huns had some kind of vengeance motivation for the second attack, as Akhtar, Rua's brother, had been killed in a Burgundian counterattack earlier on. Either way, though, Aetius got what he needed. The remaining Burgundians were scooped up and settled in what is now Savoy, under a fairly limiting treaty, though they were allowed to keep their own king. In return for the genocide, it appears that Aetius ceded the province of Pannonia Prima to the Huns. That is unprecedented. There was no foetus put forward. It was a straight-up giveaway of Roman territory to an outside power. The timeline here isn't at all clear to me. There are three different years for it to have occurred in, and no source that I can find actually makes the connection between the Burgundians specifically to the handover of Pannonia, but that sequence of events makes the most sense to me. Clearly the Huns were being rewarded for services rendered, whether it was that specific war or multiple occurrences. What is clear is that the connection between Aetius and the Huns was robust, and he would use them frequently. In the 20s and 30s of the 5th century, Hunnic mercenaries became the mobile enforcement squad for Aetius and the Romano-Gallic aristocracy. After the death of Octar, Rua became sole ruler of the Huns. As far as we can tell, he's the first person to indisputably hold that position. He mostly interacted with the eastern half of the empire, sending diplomatic missions to Constantinople fairly regularly. The most common issue seems to have been that of fugitives who fled into Roman territory. The Romans were reluctant to return such fugitives because they could be used as soldiers, and just on purely humanitarian grounds, especially since some of them seemed to have converted to Christianity. Rua, meanwhile, was equally eager to get them back, since he did not want other tribes fighting against him on the side of the Romans. Eventually, one such batch of fugitives were returned to Rua, and at least some of them were immediately crucified, possibly because they had converted to Christianity, and the annual tribute payment was increased to 700 pounds of gold. Just as a united Gothic nation on the border was a problem, a united Hunnic nation was going to be a disaster. Raiding continued into the Eastern Empire, always when the state's back was turned. There were major incursions, like I mentioned, in 422, and again in 435, and it seemed that Rua was starting to be able to do something the Goths had never really mastered, which was capture cities. Rua seemed to be able to do what he pleased. Theodosius II supposedly prayed to be rid of this problem, and the story is that he was rewarded and his prayer was answered, when Rua was struck by a thunderbolt and killed in the greatest of old-fashioned smiting traditions. To rub salt on the divine wound, plague struck among the Huns, and there was some kind of internal strife. That story about the thunderbolt, of course, is from later traditions, building up Theodosius's credentials as a Christian ruler, but it does appear that Rua died around 435. He was succeeded by his two nephews, named Bleda and Attila. If the death of Rua seems to have been the answer to the emperor's prayer, what then could be the divine plan behind this. Thanks for listening. I know there's a lot crammed into a small package there, and it wasn't terribly well organized, to be frank. But next time we'll bring out the big man himself. The barbarian of barbarians. The scourge of God. Attila. When the next time will be exactly, it'll be a bit of an open question, I'm afraid. It has been busy, busy, busy here. I will be at uh, C2E2 in Chicago in two weeks, not in an official podcast capacity, just for fun. 
But if you happen to see a guy cosplaying as Kingpin, running around with a whole bunch of other Spider-Man characters, then say hi. Preparing for that, along with Christmas coming up, means that writing time is a bit limited, but I will get an episode out sooner or later. You can still keep in touch on Twitter at DarkAgesPod. I'll try to be better about using that. I'm just not good at Twitter. But a big welcome to everyone on Instagram, also at DarkAgesPod. Who would have thought that that would be the one that blew up? And if you have questions or comments or complaints or suggestions... I can now also be reached directly at darkagespod at gmail.com. I am frankly a little bit desperate for feedback, and I absolutely adore those of you who have left reviews on Apple Podcasts. There will eventually be an actual contact page on the website, but I am old and have not worked out how to make that happen just yet. Have patience with the old man, kids, and please get off my lawn. Subscribe and rate on Apple Podcasts and wherever else you may be happening to listen. And thank you all so very much for listening at all. Until next time, then, take care.